listening to Proof Text, a Glossa House podcast by Dr. T. Michael W. Halcom, Dr. Frederick J. Long, Dr. Mario Melendez, Dr. Jennifer Noonan, and J. M. Smith. Welcome and enjoy. All right, welcome back to our Ephesians Greek reading group. We're in the middle of chapter two, actually towards the end of chapter two, and we've been seeing how Paul moves to call the hearers to remember. So, Dio menemo nevete. Therefore, remember that you once were the nations in the flesh, appositional, the ones being called the uncircumcision by the being called circumcision, handmade in the flesh. So, the kiro is an adjective that's modifying this feminine noun. So this this is a dual termination adjective. So it looks like it's masculine, but in fact it's feminine, agreeing with this genitive peritomes, which is circumcision. So remember that once you were the nations, okay, that that you were at that time without Christ, having been alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers of the covenants of promise, not having hope and godless in the world. This is a big list of what the Gentiles, that is the nations, used to be, what they were like in the world, uh, alienated from these things. and uh, But this nunideh indicates a a change of of position a change a change taking place the de indicates a new development distinctive and the nuni probably indicates a different uh different direction so it's not just noon it's nuni so the the e yoda on it kevin sutherland one of uh students who took a class with me did some research on this as presented and i think argues convincingly that this sets out a new a new direction in the discourse. So, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far became near by the blood of Jesus. So, in the blood of Jesus. So, in the blood, this blood of Jesus becomes an instrument to bring people near. He himself, for he himself. Now, the gar indicates substantiation. How did this take place, or in, in what way is this supported? Well, he himself is our peace. So, aftos is an emphatic subject that is not needed, although it, it keeps a kind of special focus on, on Jesus, attention on the blood of the Christ, for he himself is our peace. And so, uh, then we have an appositional statement, the one making both one. And the, the both here are the, that is, the people who are part of the citizenship of Israel, those so-called of the circumcision, and the so-called uncircumcision. So these both, both these ethnic groups, both these different ways of being in the world, these people, Christ has made one. So I'm amphotera, and, and so these are both the direct object of piesas, 
the one who made the both one. And we have a double accusative here, and this is an appositional statement explaining who this he is, what who Jesus is, and so it's it's an appositional statement with this participle, and this participle takes two direct objects, one's an external object, and one is one per, and the other is an internal object that is produced in the action, and, or conveyed in a special way through the action, and so here the both that is these both these ethnic groups defined by circumcision or not. That's the external object through the activity of Christ making, then they come out as one. So the both become one. And so here we're getting a rich description of Jesus. So this appositional statement, uh, remember that appositionals provide, are, are the abutment of one noun or substantive with another noun. And here you have a complex participle. A compound participle, substantive participle, the one making and then the one loosening. And so this article is being shared by both these participles in this rich appositional description of, of the Christ. And appositionals usually provide more definition, and here we're, we're definitely seeing that. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's elaborative in a very significant way, such that it focuses on the agency of the, the him, the avtos. So the avtos, who has made the peace, now gets more specificity. And we could probably say that this specificity particularly relates to him making the peace. So how did he make peace? By making the two one, and lusas, from luo, uh, to destroy or to loosen. So a lot of times when you loosen something, it comes unraveled. There are certain gifts or presents, you know, when you, when you, when you open it up, you can never get it back in again. It's, and sometimes it's broken. <laughs> so this verb to loosen can actually mean to destroy uh, in, in its context. And so here, the object of that destroying is the dividing wall of the partition. The mesotikun is what Jesus as the Christ has destroyed, has loosened to the point of destroying it. So he's broken down that middle wall, the middle partition of the wall. Now this middle partition or this middle wall is given more elaboration through another appositional statement. So the first appositional statement had to do with the subject, the avtos. Now we're getting an accusative appositional statement going back to the mesotikon, the mesotikon. Uh, and again, appositional statements provide more specification. And in this case, this, this uh, middle wall this dividing wall, meso has to do with the middle, is described as enmity, hatred, hatred. And this hatred, um, then we have a prepositional phrase, en te sarki afto, in his flesh. 
um, and that in his flesh probably is is an instrument. Um, in other words, loosening this enmity, destroying this enmity by means of or in, 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 by the instrument of his flesh. And this is quite an amazing kind of, kind of statement here uh, that, uh, that, that this enmity somehow is destroyed in a way that it, it becomes particularized or, or located or associated with his flesh with Jesus' flesh. So I don't think it's the enmity in his flesh. I don't think the enmity resides in Jesus' flesh, but but his flesh became a means of destroying that enmity. Now, how did that take place? Well, he, he suffered on the cross. Remember that Jesus' death in his physical body was actually at the conjoining of Jewish power and Roman uh, Gentile power. So Jesus died between two political entities that hated each other. So his death was a travesty of justice. It wasn't real justice at all and involved the collusion of these two hating parties that came together and killed him. And so in a sense then his body came to symbolize this enmity. And uh, dying on the cross was the worst form of, of Roman punishment. And Jesus took upon that punishment in his flesh, which represents this enmity in a certain sense. So there's some association, but then his flesh becomes the means by which that enmity is over, overcome. So yeah, this is a very startling uh, phrase with prepositional uh, statement together. And I'm just trying to unpack what that what that means. Now, we have a further uh, description of of what Jesus has done in verse 15. The law of the commandments in dogmasin katargesas. And here we don't have an article in front of katargesas, this this participle, so it's not appositional like these ones are. These are appositional because of the article makes them substantive participles. This participle rather is circumstantial and I would call it postposition. So it really belongs with this clause up here. He himself is our peace. How is that explained? Well, by this post-nuclear explanatory participle. That clause explains the uh, more about how he is our peace. And so he, he made the peace by abolishing the law of the commandments in human regulations. And we looked at this last time. It's a conglomerate of words that overlap in semantics, but in the end what Jesus did away with was what caused the enmity or the separation between Jew and non-Jew. It was really a boasting in the law, and then all the human traditions that developed around the law that then continued to keep the Jewish people separate from, but also in antagonism with the surrounding peoples. 
and they didn't like the Jews, and the Jews didn't like them. I mean, the Romans, we have Roman playwrights making fun of the Jewish practices. We have Greeks and, and uh, uh, conquering people who, who uh, killed Jews just for circumcising their babies and for having possession of the law. So the Jews were targeted because of particular practices that they had, and but then at the same time, uh, they kind of hunkered down and, and really uh, tried to focus even more and more on the laws and particularizations of that law in terms of commandments, and particularly even dogma scene, in dogma scene. So what's interesting about dog, dogma is the word dogma always has to do with human scale commands. So these are additions to the law. I think at this point, this is, I, I'm suspecting what Jesus refers to as traditions of people that are handed down. And he, as he confronted his own people, he said, you're more, you're more concerned about keeping these external traditions. And yeah, they were trying to, trying to stay faithful to the covenant, but in a way, though, that was working against God's purposes and created more, more hatred and enmity with their neighbors and with, with the nations around them. So it's precisely this, then, this whole conglomerate of law commandments with human ordinances that Jesus annuls or destroys. And this is then what allows for the peace between the different nations to occur, Jew and non-Jew. This is what allows the peace to take place because that law in all specificity is no longer in effect. Now, what replaces that law? As we'll look in Ephesians, we're going to see that Christ is the new standard, the metron, the measure of maturity. It's not the law. The law was to lead us to Christ. And here we can just think of how Paul described the law in Galatians and Romans. The law made us aware of sins, but the perfection does not come with the law. The law is pointing us to Christ, and Christ brings the fullness of God to us and the relationship and the reconciliation. And so Paul right here is unpacking that. Yes, yeah, he's linking it to the enmity. Yeah, yeah, there's a linkage to the enmity, and it, it caused a dividing, a, a barrier. The law is a barrier. Now, actually, when you go back to God and the giving of the law, it was meant to be a distinguishing mark of God's wisdom. So when God gave the law, it was to separate them. But now it's time for it to be dissolved. And they ran with it too far, right? So they, they kind of used it in a way that it didn't serve God's purposes anymore. So even within the law system itself, there were provisions for sacrifice. And God was always interested. In other words, by provisions for sacrifice meant that there was a sin problem. You see, so God, all along, God, God's people should have known this, been humble in a, in a more direct way. Not that they weren't humble, or partic you know, particulars were, of course, at different times, but just that um, that as the the nation developed, it it began to take on a life of its own, and rallied around the law in a way that that had unintended consequences, or at least not positive consequences. So God has always had his sight on the nations. Even Abraham, before there was a law, said, I want, to, I want your descendants, they're going to be numerous, and you're going to be a blessing to the nations. 
So this idea of, of the nations, uh, they weren't uh, radically to be viewed negatively in terms of like total separation and no mission or concern for the nations. But you can see in the Old Testament prophets a real struggle with this, right? I mean, Jonah is a book about uh, someone who doesn't want to preach the gospel, essentially God's salvation, to the Ninevites. So the, in, in, the, in, the, in the Hebrew prophets and, and scripture, you have a struggle with how to relate positively to the nations surrounding them. Sure. Yeah, I think, I think we're talking about the law institution. The law, the law as became institutionalized by the, the nation. And that's really important. So it's not the law. The law had, I mean, Paul will argue about the law in Galatians and Romans as having a, a purpose of leading. It's like a, a tutor that leads us to, to Christ. Uh, but the law with all these commandments and human regulations kind of grew in a way that had negative effects. And that Christ himself was confronting. He's talking about traditions of people, for example. And so, yeah, so Paul understands then that Christ has annulled this whole system that became so negative. And it's particularly right in the, the moment where he's trying to describe, where he is describing that God has made both groups into one. And Christ has brought peace. He's brought a peace to the groups. A shalom. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so when you have this genitive, the law which consists of commandments in human ordinances, he's talking about a, a, a particular human additions to the law. So the, the law as this complex, which nationally was being used to be to, to foster well which fostered animus antagonism enmity between Jew and non-Jew so the law with all this stuff that then caused this hatred and Jesus did away with that and he himself becomes the standard the metron and we're going to get to that in chapter four so um, so he is our peace so what's interesting is the August, Augustus established peace through conquering and through establishment of Roman law. Jesus establishes peace through sacrifice, his own sacrifice, and doing away with human differentiations based on law. Well, it's, it's certainly more than just a personal piece. So we're dealing with a, I think we're dealing with uh, a, a shalom that is socio-political. It is social-political, and it may involve more than that, but it is certainly that in this context, because he's talking about hatred and enmity between two groups. And we're going to see that there's a purpose statement in verse 15 as well, the ina, tus duo, in order that, and this henna, we have to decide where does it go, what does it modify? Is it going back to the main verb estin, 
or is it kind of a tack on onto annulling, annulling the law of commandments in human ordinances in order that he would make the two in himself into one new humanity, making peace and and reconciling both in one body to God. So we have to unpack that. So is this is this going back to the Esten? He is our peace in order that, or I think rather it's going to this post-nuclear participle. He's annulled this law complex with human ordinances for the express purpose that he would create in himself or found in himself, found, katizu, to found a people group into one new humanity. And there's a new humanity. And Christ is the establisher, the founder of that new humanity. And then you have a post-nuclear participle explaining the founding. Post-nuclear making peace. Going back to the opening, making peace. Now this ina clause takes subjunctive, so the katises is third singular subjunctive, uh, aristactive subjunctive. And then we have another, we have a compound subjunctive, so a two-part two, two aspect to this purpose clause, that he would reconcile the both in one body to God through the, through the cross. And then we have another post-nuclear participle, killing the enmity in himself. Really remarkable. So each of these subjunctive purpose verbs founding or creating and reconciling, each of those has a post-nuclear participle description, and they each happen to be opposite, making peace or killing the enmity in him. Well, it's not quite a chiasm. It's almost like an A-B-A-B. -A -B. Yeah, pretty, pretty amazing. So he's founding, making peace, and he's reconciling by killing the enmity, doing away with the enmity, killing the enmity in himself. And we know that he, he brings this reconciliation through the cross. So here we have his death is, is being sacrificial. His death is a sacrificial uh, offering, which brings reconciliation. And so this, when we look at this Hina clause to bring us up to where we're going to start today, <laughs> or continue, this, this Hina clause has two dimensions. The first is horizontal, horizontal reconciliation, making peace, a new humanity making peace. And then there's a vertical reconciliation, bringing both into one body to God through the cross. So the cross is the, the means by which the two are unified into one body. And by doing this, he's destroyed or killed the enmity in himself. And there's a radical reversal here because through the cross is his own death, but through his own death he has killed enmity. He's gotten rid of this hatred in his own body through the cross. So pretty remarkable. God takes the worst moment in human history and makes it the best. That's the kind of God that we're in. 
is that he redeems events, people, places, times. He's able to do that. And it's amazing. So here's Jesus in his own body bringing together all this hatred and enmity and, and killing it at the same time. As he's being killed, the enmity is being killed, and he's establishing a new humanity and a peace, as well as reconciliation to one another and with God. So it's amazing right here what, what Paul has conveyed through the grammar. Notice that the uh, these post-nuclear participles are, uh, one of them is present tense, establishing peace, and, and that, you know, making or establishing suggests kind of ongoingness, whereas the killing, the enmity, is aorist, is kind of viewed as a whole, killing it. So the peace is kind of an ongoing thing, whereas the death blow to the hatred is, a, is, is a, viewed as a whole. All right, so then verse 17. This is where we're supposed to get to today, and hopefully we can finish 17 to, to, to the end. And here we have a, a quote, but it's not cited as a quote. This comes from Isaiah, Isaiah 57, 19. So it's really interesting how Paul just kind of slides into it. And we know that he's had this verse in mind because he's already used this language of far and near. So if we go to the uh, few verses earlier, he has used this once far and near and language. You were once. So he's, he's had this verse in mind. And so there's some significant changes if we compare it to the original base text that would be an intertextual study. We can't really do that. But uh, I can point out a couple if I, my memory serves me correctly. One is that you have this pre-nuclear circumstantial participle. This is not necessary. It's, it's added for some effect. So going, probably to indicate mission, going. Going, he preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. Okay, so this going suggests movement and perhaps even missionary movement. And so this pre-nuclear participle provides a procedure, uh, a description of procedure, probably because he's, he's emphasizing the fact that this gospel proclamation requires people to go. Now this reminds me of Romans 10, where he talks about well, who, will, who will hear unless someone goes and preaches. And so this, this elphone is, is, uh, is suggesting that, that there's movement involved in this proclamation of the gospel. Now something else that happens in terms of updating the text is that this peace is, is, is repeated twice. So peace to those who are near and pe peace to those who are far and peace to those who are near. So this, this really, I think, stresses the fact that both groups receive peace. And it's not just for those far away, it is for those who are near as well. And here I think of the prodigal son story, or the loving father, one son left. But really, when we look at the parable, when the son returns, it's the older brother that is struggling. I mean, the parable really is about the, maybe the disgruntled older brother. We should maybe call the parable the disgruntled older brother. And so uh, Paul here repeats peace, making sure that both groups are 
recipients of that. So he explicates that peace goes to both groups. It's not just for the nations. It's for the Jews as well. Now, I think the original context, so here's that verse. So how will they call on him in who they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom that heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? So this uh, this this reminded me of that Romans 10, 14. So people need to go. Now, the in the context of Isaiah 57, 19, we maybe would need to consider whether Isaiah had uh, returned from exile in mind, which he probably did. But this motif is repeatedly used by Paul to refer to the Gentiles as, as exiled people now brought into God's covenant and purposes. So a book that I've recently really appreciated that kind of looks at this theme across the Pauline literature is by David I. Starling. And uh, I forget the name of his, his book, David I. Starling, but it's, it's a book that that looks into this, where the Gentiles are, he looks at this Paul referring to the Gentiles as, as in exile. And then you have an OT, so verse 18, because through him we have access both. So we both, so the e are is the subject here. So this both is the subject of the we. So we is indicated by the omen, in the verb, but then it receives more specification by this kind of uh, adjective of number, both. So both. So we both have access by the one spirit to the Father. So this OT is kind of interesting here. It's not a gar, and I think the difference between a gar and an OT is that the OT is more connected to the previous clause than a gar is. A gar is like its own statement, whereas an OT is, is shows more connect more connectedness. They both can mark support, but the OT I think is a more more closely connected um, in terms of content. Uh, uniformity. So preach was peace to those who are far and those who are near. Because he himself, um, through because through him, we have access by one spirit to the Father. Now this this verse is really interesting for several reasons. One of which is that it's Trinitarian. You got Jesus, Him. You've got the Spirit, and then you have the Father. So it really is quite uh, remarkable to see. The three working together right here. Now remember that earlier Paul said that the nations, the Gentiles, were atheu, atheu, without God in the world. Now they have God in the world. They have a triune God in the world. And that's a, that's a significant uh, change. A reversal that takes place because they have access the cross ago gain so this this means that they have a hearing they have uh, the ability to be heard by God to enter into his presence they have access and this access is by the one spirit so they're not coming at God from different angles 
they're coming at it from the same angle, the same one spirit. And this is really significant because in the ancient world, spiritual entities, different kinds of spirits, and Paul's saying, no, this is the same spirit. We're not talking about a different religion here. We're talking about one, one means, one spirit, one father. And uh, Jesus is the one through whom this access is granted. So his, his sacrifice is what makes this possible. And then in 19, we have an Araun, where, where Paul uh, draws some further inferences and makes some additional new points. Therefore, then, you are no longer, which implied that at one point they were. And here we see the continued reversal of what they once were compared to what they are now. They used to be alienated and strangers to the covenants. Now they are not. Now they are no longer strangers or foreigners, but they are, you are co-citizens of the saints and household members of God. So remember that at one point they were separated from the politeia of Israel. So if you go back to verse 12, you were once alienated from the citizenship of Israel. Not anymore. Now they're sum politeia. Also they were once zeni. Now they're no longer zeni. So all these things are being reversed. This list of five things that they once were lacking now is being undone. And they belong, they are household members of God. And belonging to the household is significant because this, this means that you take on the, the deity. Uh, being, being household members, you worship the same divinity. And so they're they're under the politics of the saints. They're 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 the fellow uh, political members of the saints, and they're household members. Well, yeah, they were once foreigners and strangers. Yeah, uh, because they were without Christ. So as you were once. Um, at one time you were without Christ and this led to a whole host of things that they were lacking but now they have the Christ and this allows them to be family members and no longer foreigners they belong so everybody every every person of any nation under heaven by accepting Jesus as Messiah the Christ becomes no longer a foreigner. They're, they belong. This is part of the new humanity. Uh, they're being, they, they can join in. They're, they're citizens, co-citizens. Yeah, that's a, that's a big interpretive question. So is this a different entity than Israel? Um, I think it's, I think it's left maybe unresolved here, although it's implied that since they were once excluded from that and now they have the co-citizenship, that, that that must be in Israel, myself. So the, here I would go to Romans 11 in my argument there that, that Israel is a olive tree 
that has grafted branches cut off, but also added added in. So the saints are a term referring to believers, those who are believers, believing Jews and Gentiles. So either Israel doesn't matter anymore, or it's implied that that's what the citizenship belongs to. And that's what we're left to struggle with. <laughs> either it doesn't matter anymore, or it's implied. And I think given Romans 11, I think we'd say that it does matter. And so it must be implied. Because the five things that they were once lacking, that list of five things earlier in, in verse 12, they're now obtaining. You see, so it's a radical reversal. They didn't have those things, but now they do. So it'd be a sleight of hand if Paul suddenly isn't talking about Israel anymore. I think he rather he assumes it. Yes, one root. There's one people of God, one body. We don't have two peoples of God. We don't have two bodies. We have one. Yeah, I think I think it's implied. I think it's strongly implied from his wording. We have post-nuclear participles here of different kinds. First, we have this long one that has to do with being founded. So epikodomethentes having been founded upon the foundation of the apostles and of the prophets. And so this is a post-nuclear participle that is explaining, I think, that they are co-citizens. So their co-citizen status has to do with the fact that they've been laid down as this foundation, or they've been, they've been given a foundation now, already he's starting to work with a metaphor, and that is that we're going to get to in a moment, is that is that the, the people of God are God's temple. So they've been laid down as a sacred, uh, on a sacred foundation. They've been given a foundation as the temple space of God. And so first you have the foundation, which is the apostles and the prophets. So that they've been, they've been settled as a building structure upon this foundation. Now, there's some debate whether these prophets are like New Testament prophets, like Agabus from Acts and other prophets, or whether this refers to the prophetic tradition of the Hebrew Scriptures. So are these apostles and Old Testament Hebrew prophets, or the New Testament apostles and New Testament prophets? That's a debate. It's kind of hard to settle here. Yeah, in other words, the, um, the establishment of the city the foundation of it occurs with signs and sacrifices. Yeah. So if he has this kind of mode in mind, which I think he does, then that may provide some evidence um, that maybe this was predicted. The prophets predicted this, right? So this might be the Hebrew prophets, particularly because he's just quoted from Isaiah, which we might say is kind of a high point of the prophetic tradition. So you're founded upon the, you're, you're, they, you were founded upon the, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and then we have this genitive absolute construction, Christ Himself. This avtu is is amplifying the subject, meaning self. Christ Himself, Christ Jesus Himself, being ontos from the the verb imi, being the cornerstone or capstone. And here there's a debate. 
Are we talking something under the ground that is not seen necessarily as the cornerstone? Or is there a sense of transcendence that Christ is actually the capstone of the temple structure? Now, akro means highest. It means highest, and then goni'e'u has to do with corner. So I tend to view this as the highest corner of a temple structure in which the deity and sacred objects of, of worship and devotion are depicted on that highest corner in, the, in pagan temples. Of course, the Jewish temple didn't have that corner. They weren't constructed that way. So there's some debate as to whether this is a cornerstone or the highest corner. Depends on which kind of vision of temple, perhaps, we have in mind. Possibly, yeah. Particularly if the prophets refers to the Hebrew prophets, were they envisioning a time where the nations were included in God's purposes with a new covenant, and I guess we'd say yes. But the law was also a part of that vision. The law was going to stream forth from Zion, just as the gospel is streaming forth. I think, as one of my Marquette uh, graduates argued, is that Christ becomes the replacement of the law because he's the ideal, he's the ideal uh, king. See, a king, a proper ruler, embodies law and himself is a law. And so Christ becomes that standard for our conduct and our living. And again, Paul will argue this in chapter 4, and we'll get to that uh, eventually. So, yeah, I think there could be some, you know, if the law is abolished or annulled, then what replaces that law? It is Christ himself. He replaces that law. He speaks as God's king, and and, and then directs us how to live. And so Paul quotes from the prophets, he quotes from the Psalms later, and that probably is not accidental. He's, as you just quoted from uh, Isaiah. So this building uh, built in the foundation, in, in, then we have an, an, a reference back to Christ, in whom all the structure is knit, being knit together, pre-nuclear participle, maybe even procedural, being knit together grows, grows. And uh, this is a present active form. So in Jesus, the whole building, so this, this metaphor of the temple, the whole building is growing. And so we have this pre-nuclear participle here that may provide a uh, a framework, an important framework for this growing, but we can see it's directly abutted to the front of the verb, in which case it would become procedural. But you can see that there's a lot of energy and space given to this verb, so it's, it's actually very important, this being knit together, uh, joined together. So I think this helps stress the unity of the temple, that it's not growing at odds to each other, but continues, continues to grow. So, in whom the whole structure being knit together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, what's interesting about temple structures is that 
one you could sometimes just replace the temple structure but another times you could just keep adding to it and it, it continues to grow and I, I think this is this is this is what's suggested here is that the, the temple keeps growing it's, it's growing and expanding as more people become a part of it and it grows in the Lord and Lord perhaps suggesting his reigning authority so as the Lord is reigning directing the mission more people join the temple continues to grow and then we have another relative so these are relative pronoun clauses in whole in whom you also are being built into the dwelling place of God in the spirit he ends with making sure that the audience that is probably Gentiles in particular the nations that they understand that they are included in this building. And particularly, uh, one aspect of this building, and that is this interior dwelling place, the kat i keterion. It's, uh, it's a dwelling place, and you can look it up here, referring to a particular part of the temple. So it's simply a dwelling place. It looks like it, it may come particularly from Septuagint, so that would be interesting. I haven't studied the intertextuality of that term. But he does switch here to make sure, just not switch, but particularize, kind of hunkers down that the, the nations are being built. Present tense, they are, you are also being built into this dwelling place of God and the Spirit. So once again, you have a Trinitarian presence in in the Lord, in the one spirit, the dwelling place of God. And that, that's very significant once again. Paul has argued that these nations are not without God in the world anymore. In the world, they have Father, Son, and Spirit. And although they were once uh, ethne in the flesh, right? remember that you were once that you once were ethne in the flesh, now, now, you also are in the spirit, the dwelling place of God. See how he's, 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 he's put that as a, as a bookending of the whole thing. You, in the spirit, not anymore in the flesh. So. Yeah, that's that's a good question. What kind of temple imagery is he using? Is he using a temple imagery that they would be accustomed to seeing? Because they probably, very few of them had seen the Jewish temple. So if they haven't seen the Jewish temple, what view of temple would they have would come to their mind? Yeah. So uh, I think that's a fair question to ask. Is Christ at the highest corner, or is he a cornerstone? Is he a capstone or a cornerstone? That's a big question. So is there is there building and going up into transcendence? Christ far above everything. He's been using that spatial movement of above. Or if he's a cornerstone, does that relate to a foundation stone, like the founding of a cult in which... I think the names of founders might be found to signify when this temple was built. 
So what imagery and how, how widespread would that have been known? So these are really good questions to ask. So how does this language intersect with temple construction in, in antiquity? And uh, But we, we must not miss that this temple is growing in the lordship of Christ. That's interesting, that the lordship of Christ is directing this, and that also the nations are included. And they're included such that they're no longer simply identified by being in the flesh, but being in the spirit. All right. Well, thank you. We'll see you next time. Interested in growing your ancient language skills, but not sure where to start? Glow's House can help. From illustrated readers and short stories to lexicons and grammars, Glossa House offers a variety of resources for beginning, intermediate, and experienced ancient language learners. Head to glossahouse.com today. Glossa House, language resources for the global community.